I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 28th, 2011. It's another one of those days where I got so much to say, and I don't know, I just don't know how I'm going to pack it all into one program. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just because a person's a pastor doesn't mean they get a pass. Uh, just because they're a, in fact, that's, uh, in fact, if they're a pastor, they specifically don't get a pass. And the reason I say that is because, well, in the book of Acts, we have an interesting uh, story. We have a story, we have the story of the Apostle Paul uh, being drummed out of uh, Thessalonica, if you would. And, uh, and when, after he was drummed out of Thessalonica, he went on down to, uh, to Berea. And and we read in the in the book of Acts that the Bereans were of a more noble character uh, than uh, than the Thessalonians, and we find out that the reason why they were of a more noble character is uh, due to the fact that um, that when they received the words of uh, of the apostle Paul, that they didn't just go, oh well, that's cool. They actually tested what the apostle Paul said and um and tested his gospel against what the bible records in the old testament they tested his gospel and so uh the um the idea here is this is is that if the apostle paul now if you're not familiar with the apostle paul's qualifications um he um well how do we put this um he um he was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
And he was one that was, uh, well, not, he didn't come to Christianity kind of in the normal way. In fact, um, well, at least not apostolically. And what I mean by that is is that he didn't spend three years with Jesus traipsing around the uh, Judean countryside. He wasn't there uh, listening to Jesus as one of his closely uh, chosen associates while Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul was not called out of the boat to come walk on the water. At that time, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee and excelling in Phariseeism. And he was a legalist beyond what you could possibly believe. And um, and so uh, he comes to Christianity as one who was persecuting the church. He was a guy who was dead set on destroying the church. Okay? And um, he didn't actually make a decision for Jesus. What's really interesting is, is that Jesus made a decision for him. And while he was on his way to round up Christians in the city of Damascus, uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him. And uh, he was knocked off of his horse. He was blinded and humbled and had to be led into the town. And a Christian came and prayed with him and then said, Brother Paul, rise and be baptized, washing your sins away. And so the Apostle Paul is a guy who is one of the apostles, and he's abnormally born. And this is even by his own um, by his own accounts, but we read um, we read in Acts chapter seventeen, verse ten. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Things weren't going so well there in Thessalonica. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were uh, more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Yeah, it's, it says they were of a vulnerable character, and they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so. And this is a guy who's an apostle. He's an eyewitness to the resurrection. Jesus personally appeared to him, and yet the apostle Paul doesn't chastise the Bereans, nor does the Holy Spirit chastise the Bereans. Instead, the Bereans are held up as people who, well, they have a noble character because they compared what the Apostle Paul preached to the Word of God, and they received his word with excitement and joy and, and, and dug right into it to check to make sure what he was saying was true. So, that being the case, um, nobody gets a pass. Not me, not your pastor, not Rick Warren, not Bill Hybels, not Perry Noble, not Stephen Furtick, not uh, not anybody. Nowhere, not Rob Bell. It doesn't matter how popular they are. doesn't matter how many books they've written. They get to have their teaching compared to the Word of God. Why? Because we know that we can trust God's Word. And we also know that all human beings are by nature sinners. And one of the sins that besets sinners is is the sin of false belief, the the sin of well idolatry, setting up your own deity. And and the, see the thing is is that what fun is it to actually you know go out and you know have to create your own religion? It's much easier to just piggyback on Christianity and gut out the real biblical meaning and then pour your own meaning into it. I mean. If you're gonna if you're gonna deceive people, that's the way to do it. So yeah, you got We've always got to be on our guard. And why? Because the church is full of sinners, and it should be. It should be full of sinners. I, in fact, I got news for you, folks. Um, Jesus Christ came for sinners. 
if you are not a sinner, Jesus isn't going to help you. In fact, there's no point going to Jesus. I mean, uh, the problem that Jesus solves is our sin problem. The problem that was created by our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when they rebelled against God and and basically uh, listened to the, uh, the the serpent give his reasons as to, oh, well, you know, actually, if you disobey God, you'll become like God. It'll be a good thing for you to sin, so just go right ahead and do it. And they go, oh, God, that makes sense to us, and then they did it, you know. And yeah, not good. So, <sighs> anyway, all of that's just kind of intro you to the fact that this is a politically incorrect program. I What, what I do here on a daily basis uh, has a tendency to ruffle feathers. And what I've noticed is is that the more popular and well-known the pastor is, the more ruffled the feathers get. I mean, for instance, when I when I do a sermon review of somebody, you know, out of Pig's Breath, Nebraska, not that there is a town called Pig's Breath, Nebraska, although, you know, I've, I thought I drove through there one time. Yeah, if you blink, you'll miss it. But um, if I if I uh, do a sermon review from some unknown pastor out of Pig's Breath, Nebraska, not too many feathers are ruffled. But <laughs> pick on Joel Osteen. <laughs> yeah, I got a sharply worded email over the weekend, and I get a lot of those. <laughs> In fact, I got more than one of them over the weekend. But anyway, uh, the sharpest of the sharply worded emails came from a from a gal who was very very upset at me that I did a sermon review of. Joel Osteen, the one where he talked about how you can tell signs are from God, you know, about, you know, the little birdie sitting on the window and things like that. Yeah, I I was raked over the coals in that particular email. And I like I said, I noticed that the more popular the pastor, uh, the the worse that the feathers get ruffled. But you know what? Those feathers need to be ruffled. They need to be ruffled. I wouldn't <laughs> Let me put it this way. When I do a sermon review, I say that we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. If a pastor is preaching the gospel and I'm hearing him correctly handle God's word, I don't care who the pastor is. I recognize that. And in fact, in the past, if you go into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, I actually did a favorable sermon review of Stephen Furtick about a year something ago. And uh, you know, it was actually more than a year ago. Now that I think about it, um, yeah, it's it's going on maybe thirteen, fourteen months ago. But uh, I had to give him props because he actually did a fa- he did a pretty decent job, and I had to give him props of the fact that it, you know that he was doing a good thing in that sermon. And I've I've also sharply critiqued Stephen Furtick. So it it for me, it's not about the personality. It's not about the person doing it. Although the more popular they, they are, um, uh, that does tend to warrant uh, me paying a little closer attention, although I, I don't really get to everybody, that's for sure. Um, but the point is this, is that you, you give credit where credit is due, you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, see if they're rightly handling it. And by the way, when a pastor is preaching... Twisting God's word does not fall under the category of Christian liberty or doctrines that are not important. I've seen people misapply this um, this idea that uh, in when we talk about biblical orthodoxy, we talk about cardinal doctrines that are absolutely essential, and we talk about non-essential doctrines. Okay, now which, by the way, I think is is a, a, is not the best term. But if you work with these two categories, the idea is this, is that um, fundamental doctrines touch on the nature of God 
and how we're saved, okay? Non-essential doctrines would be places where Christians, true Christians who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, read the same passage and don't come to the same conclusions. Let me give you an example of that um, uh, in a non-essential doctrine. Um, the the uh, argument regarding uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Okay, now, I I tend toward amillennialism, but I've spent time in dispensational uh, pre-trib uh, millennialism. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in that. And um, I've rejected it on biblical grounds. Now, just because somebody believes in the rapture, and I don't believe in the rapture, I don't believe that it can really actually be defended from the clear passages. I think there's a different way of looking at those. Um, I don't put somebody out of the Christian faith. You know, if if I look at their, if I look at what they they confess, what they say they believe, what they teach, and what they confess. Notice it's not just oh I believe this, and I don't I don't believe in what's called filing cabinet orthodoxy. And so the idea there is is a filing cabinet orthodox person is somebody who wants to create the pretense that they're biblical and that they're that they're uh, they're that they're an orthodox Christian, but the the uh the the confession that they hold to sits in a filing cabinet okay and so you say wait a second that doesn't sound orthodox to me are you sure you're a christian they say oh yeah 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 i'm sure i'm a christian just go look at my look in the filing cabinet uh yeah open up the drawer that ha- for the letter o yeah it, letter o and then look in the file entitled orthodoxy in there you're going to see my uh, my doctrinal statement and and you pull it out and you and you read the doctrinal statement and you go oh well that's orthodox and they see but the problem is, is that that's not what they teach, and that's not what they con- they confess. They say they believe it, but they don't teach it or confess it. And instead, what you hear constantly from the pulpit is stuff that contradicts the orthodox statement that's sitting in the filing cabinet. Yeah, that's not a good thing. That's um, that falls into the category that we uh, we lovingly refer to uh, in in the Bible, or the Bible lovingly refers to as wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And they, yeah, so filing cabin orthodoxy is generally a uh, that is a red flag. Somebody who says, "Oh, I'm orthodox," but then they don't teach it or confess it. They say they believe it, but they don't teach it or confess it. That's a problem. So what a person believes, teaches, and confesses, it, yeah, it, it's all got to line up. But so the idea then is this: is this um, who is God? You know, is God a Trinity? Who is Jesus Christ? Is he God in human flesh? Is he the second person of the Trinity? Uh, God the Son in in human flesh? Did he die for the, you know for all of our sins? Are we saved by grace through faith alone and through Jesus Christ's work alone? Those are those are important things. Okay, and you'll notice that when it comes to eschatology, P- Christians disagree with each other, but the one thing they do agree on is is that Christ is going to return. The specific details of that return. Well, there seems to be at times fierce debate over those things, and the way I look at it is, is that yeah, um, some of the finer details of pre-trib dispensationalism. I don't know how they get that from any of the texts, but um, I'm not going to say you're not a Christian if you believe it. I'm just going to say that you know, um, okay, that you know, that doesn't put you outside of the faith. But I think we're going to just have to disagree because I don't think you're handling the Bible correctly. But but here's the deal: twisting God's word consistently, when you open up the scriptures, ripping verses out of context and saying things, making God say things that he never said and slapping his name on it, 
That is not a non-essential, even if the, quote, doctrine that's being taught doesn't touch on one of the cardinal doctrines. It is never, never, never a non-essential when somebody is ripping God's word out of context and making it say things that it doesn't say. That actually falls under the biblical prohibition of you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That falls under the category of blasphemy, and blasphemy is not allowed. So it is the job of every pastor to rightly handle God's word and to handle it in context using correct exegetical and hermeneutical methods, also known as the historical grammatical method, and not allegorize the text, not rip passages out of context and make God promise things that he never promised. So yeah, you get what I'm saying? So anyway, I just, yeah. <clears throat> I just wanted to spend a little time clarifying, you know, from time to time, you know, I look at the emails and and I see recurring themes, and I, I try to address them, you know, in 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 large in a large group way of doing it. So anyway, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we've got uh, we've got a Patricia King update. Um, we've got uh, well, we've got a little bit of a Rob Bell update too, and um, and uh, let's see here, more Harold Camping news. Uh, they recently did a write up on him in the uh, in USA Today. Did you do you know how Harold Camping arrived at his May twenty first, twenty eleven date for the uh, return of Christ? Yeah, you're going to be uh, <laughs> you you're going to be even less convinced. <laughs> you're going to be less convinced that he's got this date right after you hear how he came up with the date. I keep threatening to uh, read the Tim Challies article entitled New Evangelical Virtues. I have no idea if we'll get to it today, but I just wanted to, wanted to threaten you with that again. And uh, and then our sermon today comes to us from the Verve in Las Vegas. It's been a little while since we've um, reviewed a Vince Antonucci uh, sermon. This one's entitled, What Up G, Gorilla Lovers? <laughs> what Up G, Gorilla lovers. I don't know what is what up. Is that like what up God? I I don't know. Here's the uh, here's the description of the sermon. What does it mean to be a gorilla lover? <laughs> Do you have to adopt some monkey in Africa? Far from it. Listen to this week's as Vince inspires us to attack our world with love. <laughs> Apparently, he writes his own sermon <laughs> snippets. Oh man. Anyway, I and it's a big week for me, but I can't I can't get into all the details of that. So, anyway, make yourself comfortable. There's lots of ground that we got to cover today. I don't know if we'll cover it all. If not, whatever we don't cover, I'll try to cover it tomorrow. I can't promise that I'll cover it tomorrow though, but I really do mean well. I mean, cuz you know, the the, <laughs> the uh the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I'm just chock full of those today. So, Anyway, with that, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Yeah, that can mean only one thing. It's time to hear from Patricia King again. This particular video is entitled Divine Embrace. All right, yeah, Patricia King from ExtremeProphetic.com. Her latest video is entitled divine embrace and you know sometimes you know i just i don't even have words anymore to describe what it is that i hear from patricia king it's yeah it's it's just best if i let her explain it herself so uh without any further ado here's patricia king do you know that you right now are being embraced with a love embrace from god himself 
Okay. He loves you so deeply. Yes. There's no one like you. Well, what? <laughs> Ooh. <clears throat> he loves me deeply. There's no one like me. <laughs> well, I would, you know, not that I would ever want to contradict you, Patricia, but there's about mm, 6.5 billion people just like me on the planet, and we're all sinners. Yeah, um... Born by nature, at war with God, dead in trespasses and sins, objects of God, God's wrath. You know, you know, I always get a little <clears throat> uncomfortable. How does it? How, trying to think back, how other people have said it. I, I get uncomfortable when um, people start talking about God's love for me in in these kind of almost borderline erotic terms, and on top of it. Uh, when you kind of disconnect it from the cross. I mean, you know, I think back to Romans, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Or, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, I... That I that's the kind of love that I can kind of relate to, actually more relate to, especially now that Christ has granted re- me repentance and the forgiveness of my sins. Uh, why? Because um, I don't think of God as, you know, just grabbing me up and giving me a loving embrace. Um, and, you know, I th- when I think of the love of God, I think of Jesus bleeding and dying. Got any of that for me? Let's, let's see where we go with this. So deeply. There is no one like you. His eye is upon you. He adores every part of you. He created you with adoration in your DNA. You were created. There is adoration in my DNA. I wonder if uh, Craig Venter from the Human Genome Project would be able to locate that. To be adored. He loves you. And you know, the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. Yeah, could you give us details on that? Because, uh, you know, the passage you're referring to was written by the Apostle John. And when he's talking about it, that, you know, that, you know, we love God because he first loved us, that's clearly, when you read that passage from the Epistle of John, in context, it's referring back to the cross. Got any of that for me? If you don't know for sure that God loves you, then you'll never be able to love him or others fully. He wants you to know that you are the apple of his eye. That Me, I'm the, yeah, oh boy. Is it me or does this just sound like it's just over the top focused on me or you? <clears throat> you know, usually when people compliment me like this, <laughs> I, I, I immediately try to quickly gra- put my back against a wall so they can't get behind me and stab me, you know? You are the center of his affection and attention. Just receive that today. I believe that there's many of you that are going to get healed just by knowing that God loves you. Some of you right now are actually feeling his embrace. You're feeling a warmth. I can just kind of feel the manifestation of it right now. It's like almost like warm honey. Ew. Ew. Okay, no, no. I'm so glad I'm not feeling that. <laughs> yeah, because if I was... um. If I was feeling the love of God pouring over me like warm honey, the first thing I would do is run to the shower and pray that it gets out of my hair quickly before it sets, you know. Coming over you. 
there's someone that the Lord's showing me right now that you're watching this clip and you've been so stressed recently. You're afraid of your future because of some of the circumstances that have been, been pressing in on you recently. And the Lord says, if you'll just lay the fears down, lay the worry down, lay the anxiety down, and just come and get a hug from him. Let him, let him hug. So God is telling you to tell somebody watching this video that um, they need to go to God and get a big hug from him, a big warm honey bath. <sighs> if you be aware of his embrace, then your heart will go into peace. See, he's got everything already looked after. God loves you with an everlasting love. He really, really does. And he wants you to know the power of his intimate embrace. He'll never lose his grip. What is it with mystics? What is it with mystics? Whenever they talk about the love of God, I get creeped out. <sighs> you know, it, it, you know, I'm telling you, there's something, something about mystics that, uh, you know, when they talk about the love of God, it crosses over uh, from the Greek word agape into the Greek word eros. I'm telling you, it just grosses me out. You know, no, Jesus is not my bearded girlfriend, and I don't want to think about God like that. He'll never let go. He'll never leave you alone. He's always with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. I'm getting another word of knowledge right now for... Really, it's just coming in. Wow. <laughs> and we get to witness it here at Fighting for the Faith. While she was talking, you know, there... You know what, though? She, she was just, you know, she, she had this thought just beamed into her brain. But, you know, according to Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, I mean, yeah, that God wants to talk to you. But have you stuck it through either the seven-filter grid or the five-filter grid? Um, or have you considered maybe the larger expanded maybe nine to ten-filter grid... Uh, if you just if you were to you know stick uh, Rick Warren's grid and Bill Hybels grid together, I think you come up with ten or eleven different things. Yeah, you know, I don't see her running these these through a grid. For a woman whose husband has just uh, left you, your marriage just collapsed; it fell apart, and you are so heartbroken. And the Lord says that He is going to to fill you with His embrace, and you will be kept during this trying time. He's going to heal you. He's going to strengthen you, fortify you, because his embrace, the grip of his love embrace, will never loosen. Why is it that when we listen to Patricia King, she preaches and teaches more about the things that supposedly God has beamed into her brain via download than what's actually in the Bible? Hmm. You, you can trust him. Just fall into his arms right now. He's got your future in his hands, and it is... Just fall into his arms. Well, where are they? I mean, I've seen this before. You know, you ever been to one of those corporate team-building events, you know, where you're supposed to, you know, you blindfold a guy, and then he's supposed to fall backwards, and everyone, you know, the team, you know, has their arms out to catch him? It's it's supposedly a trust-building thing. Never did do that. Um, I'm very happy about that. But is is that what you're talking about? Just fall into his arms? Going to be good. It's been a little bit of a glitch in the system, but God's going to take care of it. If if a woman's... Oh, hang on a second here. A little glitch. You're, you, you claim to be receiving a download directly from God about a woman whose husband left her, and that's just a little glitch in the system. Creepy. I want you all to know that are watching this clip that we at XP Media 
love you. In fact, we created XP Media for you so that we could bring the word of God to you so that we could. <laughs> She's a, it's got to be April Fool's. Hang on a sec. No, it's not April Fool's. <clears throat> Sorry, but I mean, I just find that rather funny because, you know, I've been reviewing Patricia King videos for, well, almost as long as the program's been on. Coming on three years now. And uh, I have yet to hear this woman actually teach the Word of God correctly at all. I mean, if that's what you created XP Media for, <laughs> Patricia, I mean, when are you going to get around to actually doing the thing you created it for? You know, just a <clears throat> logical question, but you know, we continue. Bring the goodness of God to you. We love you and we love the scope of of the uh, nations that are that are broadcasts and our webcasts uh, reach, would you pray for us? No. Well, I, actually, I will pray for you. I pray that God will open your eyes to the deception that you are entrapped to, uh, bring you to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins for your false doctrine, your false revelations, your false teaching, your false signs, your false miracles, your false prophecies, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I will pray for you, Patricia, and, and that will be the subject of my prayer. And when I mention you before God. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello and welcome to Sinners Seeking Truth Institute. It has come to our attention here at the lab that there are many preachers and teachers in this world that speak in tongues. This may not come as a surprise to many of you at all. However, we here at the lab have devised a way to interpret these teachers who speak in tongues. Many of these people that we are talking about include Paula White, Coney Thomas, Kenneth Copeland, Todd Bentley, Kenneth Hagen, Benny Hinn, Patricia King, and many more. Our apparatus used to interpret these tongues is very complicated. It consists of playing their voices backwards, running the sound waves through an underwater speaker submerged in a fresh batch of East India Trading Company tea, while stirring the liquid with a cinnamon stick drenched in Kopi Luwak coffee, and running 666 volts through it simultaneously. Needless to say, there was much trial and error in devising this particular translating device. Upon successfully translating the phrases and sayings of the preachers who speak in tongues, we were horrified at our results. We have done the necessary science and are completely positive that our interpretations are 100% accurate. Here are some examples of the results we've come up with. Normally, this is what you, the audience, hears before translation.
This is what we've heard after putting it through the translator. Computer translation sequence initiated. Translation complete. According to my calculations, the speaker said, it is so easy to deceive you simple-minded silly people. Don't you realize that this entire thing is a money scam? Here is another person speaking in tongues. Keep praying, people. Malva piombo calute. Niente minti del metro calbamu. Pialba canti niente nel fitri palba curame. Canta pielbe milbe del metro palba cu. Simeon, let me hear This is what our translator picked up. Computer translation sequence initiated. Translation complete. According to my calculations, the speaker said, I'm so rich, I'm so great, I have power, and you have none. You listened like dogs to this garbage I preach, I lead you away from saving grace and give not a care to your terrible plight. Here is our final example. Here is the translation. Computer translation sequence initiated. Translation complete. According to my calculations, the speaker said, Give me your seed offerings. I enjoy being rich. I live in a huge house, and you all live in squalor. I laugh at your stupidity. I can't believe you people actually believe this spiritual garbage. We here at the Sinners Seeking Truth Institute hope that you use some discernment next time you hear anybody speaking in tongues. The best way to know whether or not it's from God or the devil is to listen to what the pastor or teacher is emphasizing on in their lessons. Are they teaching about themselves, wealth, your best life now, your purpose, or Jesus Christ? If it's anything but Jesus, then we believe you have a major problem on your hands. At that point, run. This has been a public service announcement. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, uh, Patricia King is a plastic banana, $3 bill, false prophetess. 
if she's hearing from God the Holy Spirit, then I am actually a very, very skinny and handsome man, and I'm, I'm probably only 18 years old, too, and I have the physique of, uh, well, <clears throat> you know, somebody sent me a, a a link to a news story that basically talked about how churchgoers are more likely to be obese. Yeah. <laughs> That explains my problem. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, so... um. Yeah, uh, Rob Bell, you know, we've been talking a lot about him lately. I tried to pull back just a little bit because, like I said, you know, because of the fact that, there were, you know, he released the video and then it was like two-something weeks even before the book came out, you know, we we pretty much had the whole thing buttoned up even before the book came out on, you know, regarding the doctrine of hell, what it, you know, what the what the scriptures teach, what Jesus taught regarding it, and uh as a result of it, you know, Rob Bell's contribution is, well, it's just a little bit too late. And unfortunately, he's not bringing any, um, well, new revelations. And as a result of it, I trust Jesus and not him. But, you know, uh, he's still making the rounds. Still, They still put the uh, the cameras on him. And he was recently interviewed for the um, the Washington Post uh, for their Divine Impulses section. And uh, and they allowed they, they they asked him some questions that came from the audience uh, via Twitter. And I thought I would just pass this along to you. And then I'll let um, Mark Driscoll respond. <clears throat> Here's um, Rob Bell. Uh, we've got a couple of questions from okay. Twitter. Um, what if you're wrong about hell? <laughs> That's a great question. What if you're wrong about hell? And I think that's probably one of the best questions I've seen asked of him in this entire thing. What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Because here's the deal. This isn't what Jesus taught. What he teaches isn't what Jesus revealed. It isn't what Jesus talked about. And uh, and so here's the deal is, is that, you know, I, I pity the person who, you know, is going to wager on Rob Bell's ideas being right, considering the fact that when you go back into church history, this ain't what the church taught even from the beginning. It's not found in the Gospels. It's not found in the writings of the epistles. It's not found in the writings of the church fathers at all until like about origin. You know, that's where the first you get the first maybe blip like this. And uh, and then it gets put down pretty quick. And the church is consistently taught for its entire history that, Jesus is going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end, and that uh, what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 25 to the, uh, you know, saying to the goats, uh, depart from me into the uh, fire prepared for the devil and his angels, um, and that they will go off to eternal punishment, that, you know, the church is pretty much taught, that's pretty much how it's going to go down. But not Rob Bell. He's come up with a brand new postmodern interpretation that uh, involves some kind of weird mystical 
uh, ideas uh, smuggled in from, it sounds to me more like the Eastern religions rather than uh, what the Bible teaches. But now, now here's the question. I mean, there's a whole lot of people that are going to read Rob Bell's book and they're going to go, I believe what Rob Bell says. And so now the question is, what if you're wrong? Now, he, here's the deal. I mean, this is a perfectly fine question because um, the, it comes down to the issue of who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Jesus or are you going to believe Rob Bell? Because they're not saying the same things like at all. So you're either going to believe Jesus or you're going to believe Rob Bell. Well, who has the better credentials, Jesus or Rob Bell? Go with Jesus because he actually rose again from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. As for Rob Bell, it, it has we, we have yet to determine whether or not he will rise from the dead. Uh, three days after his death, so I'm not I'm not advocating crucifixion for Rob Bell. That's not don't take it that way at all. But what I'm basically saying is is that at the moment Jesus has the far better credentials than Rob Bell. So the question, well, what if you're wrong? Listen to his answer because he's going to be asked another question, and this just sounds to me like he he wants it both ways. He wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. But uh, listen carefully. If billions and billions and billions of people, God is going to torture them in hell forever. People who have never heard about Jesus are going to suffer an eternal agony because they didn't believe in the Jesus they'd never heard of. Uh, No, uh, because they were sinners. Plain and simple. Then at that point, we will have far bigger problems than a book by a pastor from Grand Rapids. Okay, if there's no hell, then why did Jesus die for our sins? No, what? <laughs> the, the, when you put these two questions together, okay, remember what his answer was to the first question. What if you're wrong? Well, we if there's going to be billions of people you know, being tortured by God in hell, we have bigger problems. Then they, she turns around and asks a question about hell, and watch this one. Talk about doublespeak. What I argue in the Bible for is for the existence of hell. Yes. Hell is, well, you going to heaven, and because you don't want to be there, it's hell for you. In the Bible, so, so where you read, I believe in hell now. I believe in hell when you die. I believe God gives people the right to say no, to resist, to refuse, to reject, to cling to their sins, to cling to their version of their story. So uh, the Bible is very, there's a whole chapter in the book on hell, and I think we should take hell very seriously, and I think it exists. Yeah, and, but just not as seriously as Jesus took it. And so uh, there being no hell isn't something I believe, so there you go. All right, two questions, two speaking out of both sides of his mouth. And I thought it would be fun if I allowed um, Pastor Mark Driscoll from uh, Mars Hill Bible Church not um, Mars Hill in uh, Seattle, not Mars Hill Bible Church, but Mars Hill. He has a similar name, but uh, Driscoll uh, early on was um, was part of you know the the greater emerging church thing, and he ended up uh, distancing himself tremendously from the movement. In fact, is uh, he's he's even written articles in uh, the uh, Christian Research Journal. Uh, talking about the heresies of men like Rob Bell. But uh, here's uh, uh, Mark Driscoll talking about this very recently. Here we go. For the believer, to die is gain, and what awaits us is far better. 
And we'll know when we get there exactly what that means. Number six, the last question that I will seek to answer for you today. Will everyone who doesn't know Jesus go to hell? What if you've never heard of Jesus at all? Asks Jesse at Marceau Ballard. Yeah, you'll notice that uh, this question is oh so similar to the uh, one posed to Rob Bell. Let's see what Mark Driscoll does with this. There are essentially two questions here. I'll answer them in succession. Will everyone who doesn't know about Jesus go to hell? Yes. 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 It greatly disturbs me when well-known pastors and preachers and authors get invited onto television studio sets where the lights are on them and the world is listening to them and the interview inquires of them. If you don't know Jesus, are you going to hell? And they squirm or they change the subject or they appeal to the emotions or they tell a story. They do anything but say, yes. Yes, if you don't know Jesus, you go to hell. What about unborn babies? You know what? God's a father. He makes a decision. I trust him. I'm less concerned about the unborn. Let's talk about you. You're alive. You have a decision to make. I trust God with my miscarried child. Now, there's a problem right there. (laughs) Now, you're going, what was the problem there? You have a decision to make. Driscoll is one of these guys who who hangs on the fringes of the reformed camp, okay? And um, although I love what he's saying here about hell, he's being straight up manly about it. He's not dodging the question. He's tackling it head on, and you have a decision to make. Yeah. I would I I I would shy away from language like that. Instead, go to the divine imperatives. Uh, repent and believe the gospel, and don't. Uh, I just I mm, not a fan of decision theology because it starts messing things up and starts putting you into the uh, Pelagian camp. No, preach the law, preach the gospel, call men to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Call them to repent and believe the gospel, and whoever does respond in faith and repentance, God the ha- the Father through the Holy Spirit is the one who gets all the credit. Because it's the Holy Spirit doing the Holy Spirit's job. The job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and unbelief. So you preach the law in all of its rigor. You preach the gospel in all of its splendor and its blessed comfort. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to quicken men's souls, turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, to grant repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So although I love Driscoll's answer... It just, you know, have you seen Lane Chaplin's um, interview with um, Michael Horton? Just came out. The uh, Lane Chaplin. I, I've been on his uh, YouTube uh, program before, and uh, and in his interview that he just published with uh, with Michael Horton, uh, Horton talks about the fact that there's guys in the Reformed camp who are stapling Reformed theology to fin- uh, Charles Finney's ecclesiology. Just makes me wonder if um, Driscoll was one of the guys that he had in mind. But anyway, let's continue. 
I trust him to do what is good and right and just. What about you? Don't change the subject, friend, and I won't let you because I love you. Let's talk about you. Have you received Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus? If not, you are in the path of the wrath of God. You are headed to the conscious, eternal torments of hell. Let me say it clearly. Let me say it plainly. (laughs) You haven't been... I don't think you could get any clearer than this, Mark. Let me say it loudly. Let me say it lovingly. Let me say it pleadingly. You are in danger. Yes. Yes. And he's right. He's dead, right? All of us by nature are objects of God's wrath. It is the loving thing to plead with people to confront them with their sins and placard Christ, the crucified and risen Savior who died on the cross for their sins and call them to repentance and faith in Christ and to tell them and to warn them to flee the wrath to come. This is loving. This is not hateful. What Rob Bell does, it looks loving to the world, but it's truly hateful. Yes, without Jesus you go to hell. My job is to tell you the what? The truth. Because I love God and I love you. I can't have your blood on my hands and I can't stand before him and have him say, not well done, unfaithful servant. Here's what Jesus says. John 14, 6. He couldn't be clearer. Had he not said things like this, no one would have killed him. I am the way, the truth, the life, singular and exclusive. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one. No one. Buddhism, no. Hinduism, no. New Ageism, no. Mormonism, no. Jehovah's Witnessism, no. Nice people, no. Good people, no. Generous people, no. Religious people, no. No one, that includes you. No one, no exception. No one. No one. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. That's exactly what Jesus said. My job is to tell the truth. Your job is to make a decision. No decision is to make the wrong decision. Peter, preaching as a pastor to people that he loves as I love you. And just because I'm yelling doesn't mean I don't love you. It means I'm warning you. It's like a building is on fire and I'm shouting fire. Because my voice is elevated does not mean I don't love you. It means that I do. He says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation. Let me just stop there. Isn't that fantastic? 
Boy, there's good news. There is salvation. <sighs> okay. Tell me about that. There is salvation. That sounds great. Right? Friends, there is salvation, but it's in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, anywhere, given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. That's it. Salvation is in Christ alone. The question is, what if you've never heard about Jesus at all? Well, I'll tell you a few things. Salvation is only through Jesus, but the message of Jesus can be sent out by missionaries, technology, publishing, the internet, church planting, an angel can show up, God can show up. I don't know who has heard. I don't know who hasn't heard. Here's what I'm worried about. Are we telling them? If people haven't heard, then let's tell them. Let's tell them that Jesus is God. Let's tell them that Jesus lived without sin. Let's tell them that Jesus died in their place for their sins. Let's tell them that Jesus rose to conquer Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God. Let's tell them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's tell them that there is no salvation apart from him. That's right. That's right. And that needs to be our message. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Not just right now because Rob Bell has stirred up the pot. But Driscoll's right. Not because he's so smart or because he's hip, and because he wears jeans and really cool clothes when he preaches, or he has one of those really weird microphones that attaches to his ear, and he has a an HD television screen that he looks at while he's preaching. He's right because he's telling you what God's Word says. He's telling you what Jesus said. He's telling you what the apostles, who were the eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection, what they said. The church has always taught, because Jesus has taught, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. There are no Christians who don't know that they're Christians. He calls the church to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Not to play patty cake with them, not to assure them that, oh, it's okay, we've got a theory, we've got, we've got liberal theologians who've come up with a new way of interpreting the Bible, and their new way of interpreting the Bible makes us, you can, you can stay in Islam, you can stay in, in, in Buddhism, no, 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 you're, you're probably already a Jesus follower, and the way we can tell is because you give alms to the poor. So don't worry, it, it, it'll all work out for you. 
That is not the message that put the wind in the sails of the Apostle Paul. When he was preaching at Ephesus, when he was preaching at Galatia, when he was preaching at Thessalonica, when he was preaching in Berea, this is not the message that put wind in his sails that inspired him, bad term, but that put basically the burning in his heart to go and preach the gospel to everybody he could possibly preach it to, to risk his life and limb to do this, having been stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, spat on, beaten up. It wasn't the message that, oh, it's going to be okay for everybody, don't worry. No, it was repent and be forgiven. Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and there is salvation in no other name than his. He is the one God promised from the beginning at the Garden of Eden, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and in the process would have his heel bruised. Jesus, the one that the Scriptures testify about, he has come, and he's proven this by his death and resurrection from the grave on the third day and that he was a wise witness of that. To go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and warn men to flee from the coming wrath of God. It's just like the Passover. Go and tell everybody to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, slaughter it and put its blood over the door your house, and when the destroyer comes, he will pass over your home. But every home that does not, does not have the blood of the lamb over it, the destroyer will enter and do his dark work. Read Exodus. And that's a picture of the coming judgment. That's the picture of the coming judgment. The shed blood of Christ covers us and protects us from the coming wrath of God, because when we are in him, Christ's righteousness is given to us as if we lived it. Our sins, having been punished by Christ, by God on Christ in our place. It's a great exchange, and there is no better good news. The the, the good news that Rob Bell preaches, what if he's wrong? He is wrong. And you would be foolish to bet your eternity on Rob Bell's twisted and novel interpretation and mishandling of the biblical texts. Okay, we're up on our second break. Uh, When we come back, it's sermon review time. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. I've got so much to talk about. There's just no way I can get it all in. So the other things I want to talk about, we'll talk about them tomorrow. Sometimes I think I'm an overachiever. And then I look at my waistline and go, no. <laughs> Moving along. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from The Verve in Las Vegas, Nevada. Pastor Vince Antonucci presiding. The name of the sermon is What Up G, Gorilla Lovers. <laughs> okay, you're going to hear about the love of God in this. The question that needs to be answered is, is the love of God preached about in this sermon anchored in the cross? Uh Uh-huh, that's the question. The reason I ask the question is because as I've been... uh, I'm working my way through the book of Matthew, spending some time uh, doing some translation work, uh, working in the commentaries. And um, 
I found this rather fascinating. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, here's what he writes, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to uh, Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When we talk about the love of God, are we talking about the love of God that's grounded in the cross, that's grounded in Christ? that fulfills, that focuses in on what the angel Gabriel told Joseph, to name Jesus Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. That's the question that we need to answer as we listen to this sermon entitled, What Up G, Gorilla Lovers. Here we go. Here's Vince Antonucci. Hey, you're tuned in to the Bird Podcast live from the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for listening, and viva the Bird. I gotta ask you: Have you ever dreamed of being a superhero? Yes, you have. Maybe it's been a while, right? Maybe you're too mature for that now. It's when you were a kid, maybe. But you've dreamed of being a superhero, and I wonder. Uh, what superpowers you imagine yourself having. Uh, Some people imagine themselves having super strength or or maybe the ability to fly or turn invisible. And and I don't know what it is about me. Uh, It may be that I'm more humble than the rest of you. I I pride myself on humility. Already we're off to a bad start. Why are we off to a bad start? Because we're talking about Vince Antonucci. You know, I, I discovered a very priceless gem. Over the weekend. And uh, really, yeah, it, 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 amazing, amazing, okay? As Christianity in the ninth century was being brought into the provinces that would become what we know as Germany, there was a tribe of German warriors called the Saxons, and I'm assuming that Saxony is named after them. But the Saxons were, whew, yeah, they, these guys were brutal. And Christianity was brought to them. And there was this amazing, amazing, amazing epic poem written. And it, they, they refer to it as the, uh, the, the Gospel of the Saxons. And what it is is that it's the gospel stories about Jesus Put into poetry for epic poem format. Um, you think of like Beowulf or something along those lines, and the name of it is the uh, um, is the is it's the it's the Hellyund the Hellyund, H A I L U N D I think is the way it's pronounced or A N D Hellyund is the name of it. This thing is amazing. It is absolutely amazing, and the thing that just I mean, as I, w- I, I was reading it last night as I was going to bed, and I was brought to tears. The reason I was brought to tears as I was reading this 
this document this re- that the, there's a guy from Oxford who who went back in uh, you know maybe 10 20 years ago translated it into English and so I've got the Oxford edition of this thing but um oh man 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 it, this thing puts all of these guys, all these missiologists, all these missional guys who talk about contextualizing the gospel and stuff like that, they they have no idea what they're talking about. Because one of the things that's really interesting as you're reading the Helyund is that it it does engage in what we would call contextualization. And it talks about Fort Bethlehem. It talks about Jerusalem Berg, and you know, and so there's there's these funny ways in which it it describes things, and it talks about Jesus as the chi- as as the chieftain of all mankind. And you sit there and you read this thing, and you go, "Now I understand what contextualization really is," because the way Christianity was brought to the Saxon tribes of Germany these pagan warrior tribes, was by telling the story of Jesus. And I'm telling you, there's what I've been reading in this thing, there's no gospel detail left out. Whoever wrote this thing was brilliant. They knew the gospel stories, and they retell the stories of the gospel in a way that people can understand it. Now, I'm going to give you a metaphor for this, and I understand that by get, by describing it this way, I'm going to take away some of the brilliance of it, and I apologize. But I want you to understand what this poem does. If you remember the uh, third movie in the original Star Wars trilogy, the um, Return of the Jedi, okay, when they're on the Ewok planet, uh, it's uh, the, the, the savage teddy bears. Um, what happens is, is that C-3PO is worshipped as a god by the Ewoks. You're all familiar with the story. And at one point in the story, C-3PO is telling these Ewoks the story of the Empire and the story of the Rebel Alliance's fight against the Empire. And he's telling it in a way that these Ewoks can understand it. And he's using their language to tell the story. That's exactly what the Saxon gospel is, what the the Hylund is, and the Hylund. It's it's the telling of Jesus' story in a way that the Saxon tribal pagan warriors would understand, and it's brilliant. It's not about them. It tells the story of the great chieftain Jesus and what he has done for them. And as I'm listening to Vince Antonucci, who's bought into the seeker-driven model, he's a seeker-driven church planter, and he's trying to be relevant. He's trying to make this, you know, the the story of Jesus applicable to families in in, uh, Las Vegas because, you know, he's contextualizing and all this kind of stuff. And you know what? He doesn't know what he's doing. If you read the Halyund then you really know what contextualization is. It's translating the story of Jesus in a way that tribal people, pagans, can understand it. And that's not what he's doing here. I don't know what he's doing, but already we're off on the wrong foot because Vince is preaching about Vince. 
Vince ain't preaching about Jesus, at least not to start off with. And if you if you if you are capable of getting a copy in English, I, I recommend the Oxford edition. I I know there's a Kindle version out there. I don't know how good that is. I I know that the author who who's uh, put the Kindle version together, he kind of hangs out on the fringes of the uh, liberal social justice groups. But if you can get a hold of the Oxford edition, it's it's well worth the read, and it's brilliant. When you read that and you realize what real contextualization is, puts all these guys like Vince and all these other guys to shame. But uh, I always kind of imagine myself with more, uh, I, I don't know, doing more like average, ordinary, everyday kind of things, but with superhuman ability. Like, like what if I could fold clothes perfectly? Or, or what if I could like peel potatoes, but with my eyes closed? Or what if I could grate cheese incredibly quickly? I'm talking alarming rates of speed. Like, like I could do entire restaurants with spaghetti dinners in mere seconds. And people would come, they would call me Captain Parmesan. Women would swoon over me. I know they already do that's besides the point. Uh, kids would come and want my autograph. The only question I have is, would I get to wear a cape? I'm not sure, but, but check this. I actually know a guy who wears a cape. He wears a cape all the time. He's about my age, a little taller than me, lives in Austin, Texas. And the guy wears a cape. He wears a cape uh, when he goes grocery shopping. He wears a cape to his kids' soccer games. He he wears a cape when he is mowing his lawn. He wears the cape all the time. First time I ever met him, uh, I was uh, going to speak at a church in Austin. He emailed me, asked if he could meet me for breakfast. I said, sure. So I've never met the guy. I don't know anything about the guy. I show up. We start eating breakfast. He's not wearing the cape. I don't know anything about the cape. When in the middle of breakfast, he suddenly kind of leans in and blurts out, I wear a cape. And so I said, what would you say? I said, oh, <laughs> what do you say? And he, sa- he said this. He said, yeah, I, I didn't want to wear it and freak you out. And I'm like, no, trust me, having a stranger blurt out, I wear a cape over pancakes, is sufficiently freaking me out. I'm freaked out. Who am I meeting with? And um, it, it turns out that he also wears Heelys, you know, the, the sneakers with the wheels in them, kind of like roller skates. And I asked him, I'm like, why do you wear Heelys, dude? And he was like, well, duh, because of, because of the cape. Like, it kind of gives you, a, you roll in, and the cape catches wind, and it kind of gives you this swooping in to save the day kind of a thing. When we finally got done with breakfast, we walked out to uh, the parking lot, and I went to my car, but I just watched him to see what he would do. And he went to his car very briskly. He got his cape out of the car, kind of did this, put it on, got in his car, and sped away. And I'm just like, did he, did he see some sort of signal that somehow I had missed? And where is the guy going, Metropolis? And I watched him wondering, did I just meet with a crazy man? Or, I don't know, maybe I just met with a hero. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But here's one thing I do know. I know that God is looking for heroes. God is looking for heroes. God is looking for people who are not just willing to believe. No, he's not. God is not looking for heroes. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus is looking for sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He's not looking for heroes. Jesus is the hero. Believe in Jesus, and even more than just follow Jesus, he's looking for people who will be heroes for Jesus. 
And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, you know what, that sounds nice. And I've heard things like this, be a hero. It's very inspirational. It's just not me. I, I, I'm just not that. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an average, everyday, ordinary kind of person. You know, it's kind of above my pay grade to be a hero. It's just it's a very nice idea. It's, a, it's just not me. But if you're thinking that, you'd be wrong because you can do this. You can do this. And the reason is because God's not looking for superheroes. God's looking for love heroes, for love heroes. The Bible, and maybe its most famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now there's the gospel right on. Ding, 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 ding. There it is. There's the gospel. Okay, and maybe you've heard that verse, but do you know this verse? John chapter 20, verse 21. Man, hang on a second. It's been a while since I've been able to play this. That was a full-blown gospel nugget, and it came in and left really quick. He read, you know this verse, but let me read you a different one. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Sending us to do what? To proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins repentance and the forgiveness of sins to go and make disciples because all authority has been given to Jesus under heaven and on earth. Think about that. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to the world to, to represent his love to the world, to share his love with the world. And then John chapter 20, verse 21 says, God so loved the world, he sent you to the world. To represent his love to the world, to share his <sighs> to, to what? To represent his love? <sighs> his love with the world. God's looking for, for love heroes. That verse is really interesting because it says uh, that God loved, so loved the world. Have you ever thought about that, that God loves the world? Probably, probably some of you may grew up in church, you're like, yes, I know that verse. I know God loves the world. But, but I wonder if you really know that God loves the world. Because the world, that's pretty inclusive, right? The verse does not say, for God so loved certain people in the world that he sent his. It doesn't say God so loved most of the world that he sent. It says God loved the world which includes everyone, right? I, I got this idea several years ago from a, a preacher I saw to, to start working on this alphabet book of people that God loves. It, it's just names and categories for each letter of the alphabet of people that God loves. And so I, I thought I'd share just a few of you, them with you. So my book starts, as you might imagine, with the letter A. And my book says this, God loves artists. <clears throat> God loves astronauts. God loves aerospace engineers, God loves accountants, accordion players, airplane pilots, athletes. Whose book are we reading from right now? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Vince's. Athletes, acrobats, people from Alabama, African-Americans, the absent-minded, Amish, Anglicans, and Miss America candidates. Because we don't have maps and such as the South Africa and the Iraq, such as... That's an exact quote. Uh, God loves awkward people, assertive people, aggravating people, antisocial people, astrologers, animal rights activists, adulterers, abusers, abortionists, 
people who get abortions, alcoholics, atheists, all kinds of addicts, and Adam Lambert. B, God loves babies. Aw, sure he does. Boys, bankers, boy band members, ballerinas, Bible readers, biology teachers, bird watchers, bus drivers, bookworms, bachelors, botanists, bowlers, baby boomers, beekeepers, blondes, brunettes, and people with blue hair. God loves bosses, braggarts, bag ladies, bartenders, bedwetters, Baptists, barbershop quartets, Barack Obama, and Britney Spears. C, God loves people who are cute. God loves children, compassionate people, Caucasians, Cubans, Czechoslovakians, Californians, Cambodians, cowboys, cooks, celebrities, Cherokees, Comanches, Cajuns, I guarantee. Cops, cheerleaders, clowns, cats. I'm kidding. God doesn't love cats. Come on. No joke. Come on. Uh, God loves cheapskates, cowards, comedians, Catholics, charismatics, congregationalists, congressmen, conscientious objectors, crooks, creeps, cheaters, charlatans, the conceited, crystal meth junkies, and Charlie Sheen. Winning. Duh. That's my latest entry in my book. Uh, You're getting the idea. I'll just do one more. I'll jump to O. So it says, uh, God loves Ohioans. Good. God loves you. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, God loves Ohioans, optometrists, people from Oregon. Organic gardeners, obituary writers, people who are overweight. God loves O.J. Simpson, the Olsen twins, the Octomom, Oprah Winfrey, and Osama bin Laden. Well, that's enough because you guys are getting the idea, right? There's some people on that list that you go, well, of course God loves people like that. And then there's probably some people on the list that you're like, I guess, I guess God loves people like that. And then there's probably a person or two on the list that you're like, well, come on. You went a little too far. No, 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 But here's the truth. The truth is that God loves those people just as much as he loves everyone else on that list. And God loves those people just as much as he loves you. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that God approves of all their actions, but I am saying that God loves them. And I'm not necessarily saying that all those people are going to go to heaven, but I am saying that God wants them to go to heaven. And that's why God sent Jesus, because he so loved the world. And that's why God sent you, because he so loved the world, right? God's idea is this. God's kind of, his strategy is this. What God uh, does is he so loves the world, he sent Jesus. And the idea is that there would be a person who who would uh, encounter God's love and, and experience God's love, and that they would not be able to help but fall in love with God in return. And that person would just go and share that love, show that love to somebody else. And when they encounter and experience, they would, what? They would, they couldn't help but fall in love with Jesus? Has he read the preachings of the apostles? <laughs> yeah, they were in their they were in people's faces calling them to repent of their idolatry, their sins. The apostle Peter told the people he was preaching to that they were responsible for murdering Jesus. For mur- for murdering the author of life. Those are not the types of words that you preach to somebody so that they'll fall in love with Jesus. Oh, man. This sounds like a sentimental kind of love. Experience God's love. They would just fall in love with God, and and they would have to go and share it with somebody else, and and it would just go on and on and on. And and it's like what God wants to do is he wants to ignite a love revolution in this world that, that just spreads throughout the world. He wants to do what? Ignite a love revolution. 
Vince, stop trying to be cute. Why don't you zip it, open up your Bible, and then let that decide what it is that people are hearing. You know, maybe begin in the Gospel of Matthew and just start reading, you know. (sighs) Because God so loved the world. And that's why God sent Jesus. That's why God sent you. That's why we started this church one year ago today, because God so loved the world that he wanted to start a love revolution. And really, that's what it is. It's a love revolution. You know, when you start talking about revolution, uh, it's hard to ignore the war. Those words just don't mean anything. We started this church because that's what it is. It's a love revolution. Yeah, Vince, I've uh, reviewed several of your sermons, and... um, Love revolution is like not even remotely close to the words I would use to describe your preaching. Connotation, right? I'm not a fan of, of war, but it's hard to ignore because typically revolution, you start thinking about war. And I'm no expert on warfare, but, but I think there's basically two types of war. Uh, there is what we call shock and awe, right? That's when you have more power, more resources, more people. And so what you do is you stay at a great distance and you bomb from afar and you hope to force your enemy into quick submission, right? The other type of warfare is uh, what's called guerrilla warfare. And it's when you're under-resourced and you're undermanned. And what you do is you have to be a lot more uh, intelligent and creative because it's complicated. Guerrilla warfare is complicated, right? And what you need to do is you need to design strategic ambush attacks where you're going to get in, you're going to hit your enemy, and then you're going to get out quick. And you need to be really patient because you realize, man, the the impact, the damage from any one of these uh, quick surprise attacks is going to be negligible. You know, your enemy is not going to give in because you hit him once. And so what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to hit him and 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 hit him until finally they're like, they're never going to stop. We might as well just give in, Right? That's, that's uh, guerrilla warfare. And so here's the deal. When you start thinking about this love revolution that God wants us to engage in and, and to, to spark and to be heroes in, the question, I think, is how? How, right? How does God want us to do that? <laughs> you haven't even done a sufficient job to prove that God wants us to be engaged in a guerrilla love revolution. Oh, man. How do we do that? How do we engage in this love revolution? And and here's what I think. I think that for for far too long... Yeah, those are some very dangerous words. You you know know, know what words I'm referring to? Hang on a second. I'm going to back up the tape just a smidge. Listen again. want us to do that. How do we do that? How do we engage in this love revolution? And and here's what I think. Those are the... (laughs) Vince, you're not called to preach what you think. Your job is to preach the word and to proclaim Christ and him crucified, to tell the story of Jesus. And the two verses that you've done, you've ripped out of context here in order to somehow prove that we're supposed to engage in some kind of guerrilla warfare love revolution, yeah, that doesn't fit the bill. It doesn't meet the standard. It isn't up to snuff. It's not what is required. I think that for for far too long, uh, Christians and churches, at least here in America, have relied on shock and awe tactics in our love revolution. 
I think what we've thought is we can kind of stay at a distance and we can just bomb from afar. And what we can do is we can kind of just impress people with how how shocking and awe-inspiring what we do is. And if we do that, man, we'll just bring them into, into Christianity, right? And so we've assumed that we could attract people and impress people with our big church buildings and with our, our slick presentations and with our cool advertising and, and with our stadium events. And we've assumed that we could convert people with one encounter. You know, if I had the right presentation of the gospel and I'm sitting on an airplane next to the stranger, I'll just present the gospel. And by the time we land, they're going to be a Christian. And if I just go up to some stranger on a breach and I, and I, I give them this Bible track and they read it or I leave it for my waitress, I can shock and awe her right into the kingdom of God. Now, now listen, I, I'm not saying that any of that is wrong. Yeah, I'm not saying it's wrong. What I am saying is that it's ineffective. We can't rely on shock and awe because it's ineffective. Now, if you come here for a while, you'll know we do a few of those things. In fact, right now, we have a cool billboard. And, and so, you know, I, I wonder if uh, the, uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, I mean, would you think that was effective? I mean, it was it 3,000 people were added to the number of Christians that day? Shock and awe would be one way to describe the day of Pentecost. But, you know, then again, I don't know how normative that is, but, well, there it is. Um, but then again, what were the important words? Here's what I believe. Yeah, that's not his job. He's not supposed to tell us what he thinks. So we're doing something that's a little bit shocking. I'm not saying it's wrong. It produces some results, and we're hoping that some people will come in here because of the billboard, and in this place, they'll discover that there, and there's a real God who really loves them and who can make a real difference in their lives. That's, that's what we're hoping. But the reality is it's not going to be that effective. Shock and awe tactics are not that effective. In fact, check this out. In America, in the last like 25 years, the, the church has been relying on shock and awe tactics. And do you know that there are currently about 8 million less people going to church today than there were 25 years ago, 8 million less. Did you know that there is not a single county in the entire continental United States where there are more people going to church today than there were 25 years ago? And so we've been relying on shock and awe tactics, but they're not very effective. And so what I think, what I, what I would say is that it's time for churches to start relying on and using guerrilla methodology. Serious? Here we go again. I don't know what we're... What is this? Here's what I think. Uh, Pastor, it's not your job to think about these things. Your job is to do what Jesus told you to do. Go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and to make disciples teaching people everything he's commanded and taught. That actually requires you to spend a large amount of time preaching from the biblical texts in context. But then again, he's doing what he thinks. Guerrilla methodology. That what we need to do is we need to be intelligent and creative about how we do what we do. And what we need to do is we need to get close to people, right? We don't do it from, we get close. It's a relational thing. And we need to serve people in surprising ways. We need to ambush people with love, And we need to love people enough to be patient, 
to, to not think that this is all going to happen in a day, but to love people enough to want them to know this God who loves us and that we've experienced, to want that so badly that, that we're just going to love them and 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 love them. And until finally they're like, who are you? Like, why do you serve the way you serve? Why do you love me the way you love? No one else is like you. What is it about you? Because I think I want whatever it is you have. I think this is what the Bible's talking about. In 1 Peter chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the verse up on the screen so you're fine. And if you don't eat, read, if you don't read. If you don't read, you don't need a Bible. But if you don't own an easy-to-read translation of the Bible, we give them out for free at the... uh, Velcro bar, which is kind of our connecting place there in the back. And so if you want to stop by, we will give you a Bible, no catch or anything like that. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says this. We'll put it on the screen. It says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so the idea is, he's saying, listen, once you've made Christ your Lord, like once you've decided, man, I believe in God, and I want to follow Jesus. Once you've decided that, you need to, to treat people with absolute gentleness and respect. And you need to have the kind of good behavior, the kind of good deeds that forces people to ask questions. Do you notice that? In that passage, he does not say, hey, look for opportunities to tell people what you believe. doesn't say that. What it says is, be ready for when they ask you why. Because they will ask. If you live a life of love and they see something different in you, people are going to say, what is it about you? Why do you love the way you love? Why do you serve the way you serve? Why do you have this sense of purpose that I long? Yeah, it's not an either-or, Vince. And you took the passage out of context, too. Long for. Where is it that you get this, this hope that you have? And when they ask, then you have the opportunity to very gently and respectfully to, to answer them. And I think what the idea is, it's a guerrilla revolution. I think this is what Jesus was trying to teach in so many of his parables. Jesus would tell these uh, stories. We call them parables. A parable is a story with like a spiritual lesson kind of embedded in the story. And Jesus would tell stories about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being like what it's like for people who live on earth but believe in this heavenly God and in this Jesus who came to earth for us. And and what is it supposed to be like for us? What's the church supposed to be like? And so like one time he told the parable, he said, you know what the kingdom of God is like? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed known to man. You put one in a garden and you come back later, the entire garden will be overrun with mustard. Another time he said, you know what the, the kingdom of God is like? The kingdom of God is it's kind of like yeast. Yeast is so small, it's almost microscopic. Uh, you totally messed up the parable of the mustard seed. He said it's even though it's the smallest of seeds, it grows up to be a, a bush and trees can get, uh, birds can, you know, rest in its branches. It doesn't say the whole th- garden becomes mustardy. But you put some into some dough and it will spread throughout the entire dough. Another time he said, you know what the kingdom of God's like? 
the kingdom of God is like a weed in a field. Like, like you go out to this field and you're, oh, look, there's a weed. You come back a month later, everywhere there's weeds, right? Well, the kingdom of God is like a weed? What? <laughs> what? what Bible are you reading? Hang on a second here. I've got to back this up. This is, <laughs> hang on. This is the worst. I mean, he, it's like you got to try hard to mess up the Bible this bad. Hang on. Another time you said, you know what the kingdom of God's like? The kingdom of God is like a weed in a field. Like, like you go out to this field and you're, oh, look, there's a weed. You come back a month later, everywhere there's weeds. <laughs> oh, man. How many commentaries do you think he consulted before he let that one fly? Yeah, this is, um, I don't think Vince spent much time preparing biblically for this sermon. What do you think? Um, Okay, I'm going to pull up my Accordance Bible. Uh, Accordance is the uh, program I primarily use uh, for my uh, Macintosh. And in fact, I've been an Accordance user now for 20 years, it feels like. Anyway, hang on a second here. I'm going to just do a um, I'm going to do a, a search in the New Testament. Um I want to search the Gospels. Hang on. I'm going to I'm going to limit it to the Gospels and I'm going to search for the word weeds. And I'll even throw in a wild card there uh, to make sure I pick up every occurrence of either the word weed or weeds, okay? It just so happens that the term weed occurs only in the Gospel of Matthew, in the teachings of Jesus, and it's only found in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 13. I will hit in the right coordinates here on my Accordance Bible, and uh, we will um, now read the parable that Jesus gives, Matthew 13 Verse 24. Again, the word weed or weeds does not occur in any other place in the Gospels, at least not in the ESV, and I'm not familiar with any other passages here. But here we go. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and they went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Same passage, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard that a a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make their nests in its branches. And then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven 
is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, um, do you think Vince spent the appropriate amount of time that a pastor should spend preparing for this sermon? Because the job of the pastor is to preach the word, to actually tell the story, to teach all things that Christ has commanded and taught. And that means the whole scripture, because Jesus is really the author of all of scripture. As we say that the scripture is God-breathed, who is God? Jesus is God. So all of the scripture is by him, about him, and for us, for our sake. So the job of Vince is to tell the story. Now, this is just silly, I mean, what we're hearing here, but now I've read to you the parable, the only place where the word weed shows up in the Gospels at all, and uh, let's hear again Vince's handling of this text. Entire dough. Another time he said, you know what the kingdom of God is like? The kingdom of God is like a weed in a field. Like, like you go out to this field and you're, oh, look, there's a weed. You come back a month later, everywhere there's weeds, right? Yeah, and, and Jesus says at the end of time, the weeds get gathered up and thrown into, into the fires of hell. <laughs> Do you see the, the, the themes in all those parables? Same theme, right? It's like the kingdom of God starts small, looks kind of insignificant. And it grows very subtly. You, you almost don't even notice it first. But eventually, it goes from being isolated to being a pandemic, right? It's just contagious. It's growing. It's unstoppable. And I think Jesus is saying, when you do this right, when you don't try to shock and awe people, because this is about... Yeah, the, 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 neither of those parables is about shocking and awing people. I just read them. Yeah, Jesus wasn't, that. What the purpose wasn't about shock and awe. About love, right? And love is not shock and love is not awe. Love is small and personal and relational. When you do it right, when you make it about love, when you serve and, and you ambush people with God's compassion, watch out, watch out. Let, let me give you two examples of this from history because I know we all love history, right? No, you don't, but I have the microphone and I do, so it doesn't really matter what you like. <laughs> so uh, check this. This is interesting history, though. Uh, so 100 AD, okay, uh, there were about 25,000 Christians in the entire world. 100 AD, 25,000 Christians. In 311 AD, the Roman Emperor Galerius issued an edict that Christianity, being a Christian, would fi- was finally to be tolerated. For the first time in history, being a Christian was legal, okay? 100 AD... 25,000 Christians. What's happening between 100 AD and 311 AD? Well, what's happening was it was illegal to be a Christian. If you became a Christian, if you talked about Jesus openly in public, good chance you're going to be persecuted, thrown in jail, maybe killed. Uh, During that time, there were no church buildings. There were no public meetings of Christians. There were no officially licensed pastors. They didn't have a Bible yet even to to read or to pass around. Uh, During that time... Uh, Not exactly true at all. Licensed pastors? Um, pastors' license is kind of a modern era thing. There were ordained pastors. And congregations did have Bibles. They did. They just, you know, it was so expensive to have a Bible that individuals rarely 
owned Bibles, but churches had them, and churches cited them and read them constantly, week after week after week after week. The the uh, the church by three eleven was very well versed in the scriptures, much better than the average seeker driven attender. And they had no Christian TV, no Christian radio, no. Uh, I think we could all live without Christian TV. Christian websites and no Christian bumper stickers because they had no cars, but they didn't even have them on like their donkey's butts. No Christian bumper stickers. And, uh, and so they had nothing that we would think that you'd use to kind of spread the message and let everybody know, right? And, and so do you think it's possible that, that Christianity, the number of Christians could have grown between 100 AD and 311 AD? What actually happened was the, the number of Christians grew from 25,000 to 20 million. Second example, uh, China, 1941. And, and they did that all through guerrilla tactics. Okay. Mao Zedong captures power. At that time, there were about 2 million Christians in China. And uh, the first thing that Mao Zedong did as the new emperor of China was he outlawed Christianity made it absolutely legal to be a Christian. He, he banished all foreign missionaries back to their home countries. He confiscated all church property, so church buildings became property of the state. He uh, made it illegal to have a church meeting. He killed the senior leader, the pastor, of every church in China, and then either killed or imprisoned the second highest leader in every church in China. During his reign, it was the, the Bible's illegal. It's illegal to talk about Jesus. And if his uh, administration, if they sniffed out a Christian, they would persecute that person, throw him in jail, or kill them. And, and so 35 years under Mao Zedong, that's what's happening. And, and Christians everywhere were wondering, what's going on in China with Christianity? And, and they couldn't get there in, or go in to find out. But the assumption was, it must have died. And Christianity must have just kind of died a, a slow death under those conditions. Who would be a Christian? Who would talk about Jesus? How, how could you spread the message under those conditions? So 1976, Mao Zedong dies, and finally Christians can kind of go back in and figure out what happened during those years. And what they discover is that the number of Christians grew from 2 million to 60 million. So how do you explain that? How do you explain that? I think the answer is that in those years, the first century Christians and the Christians in China, 1941, 1976, they had no choice but to be guerrilla. They couldn't shock and awe. They couldn't impress people. All they could do was relationships. All they could do was serve people and love people. And so their Christianity looked the way... They could also preach the gospel. You ever thought about that part of it? Christianity was always intended to look, and it was absolutely contagious. It, it was absolutely contagious. And God is calling us to be grill lovers. God is calling you to be a grill lover. I mean, think about this. Like, what if I said... Really, what Bible passage says that I need to be a gorilla lover again? I'm not familiar with that one. Tonight, what if I said, hey, here's the deal. You know, we at Verve, we want every person in Las Vegas, all two million people, to hear this message that God loves them, that God is real and his love is real and, and he can make a real difference in your life. We want everyone to know. And he can make a real difference in your life. How about Christ died for your sins, was raised again on the third day for your justification? Okay, but 
But uh, we're, we're going to get rid of the church building, and we're going to get rid of the pastors. We'll have no pastors, and uh, we're not going to do any advertising. We're not going to ever meet. There's going to be no services, no gatherings. Uh, we're not going to have a website. We're not going to do any advertising. We're not going to have any T-shirts. We're not going to have any bumper stickers. Could we do it? Well, the answer is, yes, we could. History proves that. What we would have to do is, well, we'd have to be gorilla, right? But it turns out, gorilla is the most effective way to let people know that God loves them, to spread this message that God so loved the world. It's the most effective way. And, and God is calling us to be gorilla lovers. Now, now, here's the deal. We're lucky because we get to add, we get to supplement being gorilla, add to that having a building and having services and having pastors and having a website and doing some advertising. We get to add that to being gorilla lovers. But listen, if we replace being gorilla lovers with all that stuff, we will be in effective. We'll be ineffective. But if we focus on being grill lovers and we add some of that along the way, watch out Las Vegas. This first year of Verve is a a drop in the bucket. Watch out what's going to happen if we're grill lovers and we add a little extra stuff as well. If we supplement some things to being grill lovers. God is calling us to be grill lovers. God is calling you to be a grill lover. God is making verve. This is what we are at verve. We are grill lovers. And, and to be a part of this, if you want to be a part of this church, that's what it is. We are a group of grill lovers. You need to be a gorilla lover. Now, here's the cool thing. The cool thing is this, that being a grill lover is not only your chance to, to let people know and to share this message that God loves people, which is the most important thing, but... It's also your chance to be a hero, which is what you've been dreaming of being since you were a little kid. Remember my friend Tony in the cape? Right? I feel like I should say, when last we saw Tony, he was speeding away in his cape. Uh, but that Tony guy in the cape over breakfast, I didn't just ask him why he wore heelys. I also, when he, he said, I wear a cape, I went, oh? He said, yeah, I didn't want to freak you out by wearing it. And I'm like, I am freaked out. And, and then I asked him the question that you would ask too. I, I said, um, why? Why do you wear a cape? And I will never forget the answer that Tony gave me. He looked me in the eyes and he said, I wear a cape because when people see someone in a cape, They expect something great to happen, and that's the person I want to be. I wanted to tell him, no, (laughs) when people see someone in a cape, they expect something crazy to happen, but I I didn't even know the guy. And and I don't know, I mean, the the whole thought of it and, and the way he said it, I was like, this, I'm, I'm, I'm just so impressed with this guy and, and his attitude. I mean, Tony has this attitude. He's like, listen, listen, I follow Jesus now, and so I'm not supposed to be normal. I'm not, I mean, I am connected to a supernatural God. I, I have supernatural compassion that drives me. I have a supernatural cause to advance. I'm not supposed to be normal. I'm a hero because I followed the ultimate hero. And so listen, if wearing a cape lets people know that there is a hero about, I'll wear a cape. If wearing a cape reminds me that when I show up, it's always to serve, I'll wear a cape. If wearing a cape is a mark of greatness, 
then I will wear a cape because my life has been marked by the Great One. Can you tell me a single thing that the Great One has actually said correctly? Can you tell me uh, uh, something that the Great One has actually done, you know, accurately? Could you actually, like, open up the Bible and, you know, teach us what it says about the Great One? Not hearing much about him. Hearing a lot about you, Vince, not... And and your ideas about capes and other things, um, not much about the great one. Fascinated. I was fascinated. I started asking him all these questions. I'm like, wow. Um, so, so how do people react when they see a guy in a cape? And, and what do you say when they ask you why you wear the cape? And do you machine wash a cape? Just all these uh, questions I was asking. And, and finally, I said, well, well, tell me some of the great things. He said, what do you mean? I said, tell me some of the great things that, you know, and he said, what are you talking about? I said, you said I wear a cape because people expect great things to happen when you wear a cape. So what are the great things that you do in your cape? And he went, oh, no, I I wouldn't tell you. And I said, well, why? And he said, I don't don't do them to tell other people. I said, I know you don't do them to tell other people, but you can tell other people. And he said, eh, I wouldn't tell anyone. I was like, come on, you can tell me. He said, I, I don't feel comfortable. I wouldn't tell anyone. I said, come on, tell me. I won't tell anyone. So uh, he said, hey, he said, well, the, the thing is, you, I mean, you're not going to be impressed. They're not big things. They're just, they're just kind of average things, just everyday things. I said, like, what? He said, they're just little things. I said, what? He said, like, when I see homeless people, like, always, I always say, can I bring you somewhere to get you some food? Like, every time. It's just a little thing. I said, no, that's cool, though. And I said, what else? He said, when I, I, I just have this deal with myself and with God. When I see a broke-down motorist, I always stop and see if they need help. Well, it doesn't matter what I'm going to be late for. I'm going to be late for work. I can get fired. It doesn't matter. I always stop. He said, it's not a big deal. I said, no, that, that's cool. What else? He said, it's not nothing big. He said, I, I serve every, every Sunday in the children's ministry, and, like, they have this schedule where you get, like, one month on and one month off, and I'm like, I don't want my month off. Like, I, I want to I help those kids know that God loves them. And so I, I serve every month and every week in the children's ministry. And I said, that's cool. I said, do you wear the cape in the children's ministry? He said, yeah. I said, see, that makes sense a little bit. Not, not, uh, and I, I, said, um, I said, that's cool. I said, tell me more. And he's like, Man, I don't know. And, and so uh, he told me some other stories, and there was this one story that really struck me. Uh, Tony told me. Just want to remind you all that the story of Tony the caped guy does not appear anywhere in the Bible. About this time where he was in a store and he came out of the store, he got in his work truck and uh, he pulled around the corner. And as he pulled around the corner, he saw this homeless guy standing on the corner and the homeless guy was holding up a sign that said this. It said, look at me, I'm stupid. And so Tony drove past this guy holding this sign. And Tony said, as I drove past him, as I continued on the road, I just kind of thought, man, that guy's not stupid. God made him. He's not stupid. He's loved by God. That guy is not stupid. He is loved by God. He's not, he's not stupid. He is loved by God. And then he said, it was almost like I heard a voice. I didn't hear a voice, but it was like I heard a voice. And the voice said, go tell him. And so uh, Tony said, I just you know, did a U-turn, pulled around, went back to the parking lot, uh, put, put my car back where it was. And he said, I, I got this crazy idea. So I jumped in the back of my work van and, and grabbed some stuff. And I went over to this uh, guy. And, um, and I said to him, I said, hey, I've got an unusual offer for you. And uh, the guy said, okay. And, and so here's what Tony says. Tony says, I have an unusual offer for you. Tony says, uh, I want to give you all the money in my wallet if you'll let me change your sign. I says, what? He says, I will give you all the money in my wallet if you'll just let me change your sign. 
Guy's like, seriously? He says, yeah. He says, okay, go for it. And, and so Tony gets down to work, and he starts working on the guy's sign. And as he's working, uh, Tony says, hey, listen, man, you're not stupid. You're not stupid. God made you the way you are. God loves you the way you are. And, and, and God has a plan for your life. And, and God loves you. He sent Jesus for you. And so he's talking to him. And, and, and finally he gets done. And, and Tony gets up, gives him all the money out of his wallet, gives him a big hug. And he says, you're not stupid, man. God loves you. And, and, and Tony pulls away. And his car goes back around the corner, and he's wondering, is the guy just going to run off with the money, or is he actually going to hold up the sign I made for him? And he looks, and the guy is standing there with this big smile on his face, holding up the sign, which now says, look at me. I'm beautiful. And I got to tell you, when Tony first told me that story, uh, honestly, uh, I am not a crier, but I had to choke back tears. I mean, just thinking about that, that Tony had it in his heart to put this on the guy's sign. Uh, I also had to hold back laughter because picturing Tony going up to this guy on his heelys with his cape flapping in the wind and going, I have an unusual offer for you. Oh my goodness, I wish I could have been there. I think I would have peed my pants. That had to be hysterical. But you know, I, I thought about this a lot. Uh, and um, it may be a little weird that Tony uh, wears a cape. It may be very weird that Tony wears a cape but I've decided that I also think it's very appropriate because Tony is a hero. Tony is a hero. Tony is what God is looking for. Tony is a gorilla lover. And here's the cool thing about Tony. All the things he's doing, they're not hard, right? I mean, giving, giving a couple bucks to a homeless guy, helping a broke-down motorist, volunteering in the children's ministry. It's not hard. What, what Tony is doing is he's doing average, everyday, ordinary things with supernatural love. He's a hero. And God is calling you to be a hero, a love hero. And you can do this, right? This is not beyond you. It's not above your pay grade, right? I mean, you can, you can give and be generous out in the community and here at Verve. And that is your chance to be a hero. You, you can serve out in the community and here at Verve. And that is your chance to be a hero, You can show people God's love out in the community. You can invite them to come here and hear about God's love here at Verve. That is your chance to be a hero, to be what you've always dreamed of being. You can be a grill lover. And listen, ultimately, the reason we do this is because of Jesus. Because some of us have chosen to follow the ultimate hero. Right? We follow Jesus. And, and you know, the thing that's interesting to me about Jesus is he came to earth. God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to the earth. And Jesus engaged this love revolution. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus did not do any shock and awe kind of stuff, really. I mean, he, he didn't become uh, an earthly king. He, he didn't amass an army. He, he didn't do like a violent invasion. No. Jesus, Jesus was gorilla. I mean, he, he washed the dirty feet of his friends. He gave food to hungry people. He touched sick people that no one else would touch because they were contagious. And eventually, Jesus went to a cross. Okay, good. We're finally back to the cross. 
Got to give him props at least for getting to the cross again. It was just mentioned ever so quickly earlier in this sermon. Notice he's not really preaching the text, but now we get a gospel nugget at the end. Let's see what he does. He went to a cross because you and I, and we, we had made so many bad decisions, and, and, and we needed Jesus to come. And so he did. God so loved the world, he sent Jesus. So many bad decisions. Yeah, see, Jesus comes to, what exactly do you need when you've committed a bad decision? Why do you need a crucified and risen Lord for bad decisions? doesn't sound like we're dealing with the sin problem properly. And Jesus came and he ambushed this world with his love. Uh, in a few minutes, our band's going to play a song. And during this song, we're going to make communion available to you. Communion is on the tables with the candles. And it's a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represent Jesus' body and blood given on the cross. And, and it's a chance for us to remember that God so loved the world. He sent Jesus. Jesus so loved the world. He did whatever it took, whatever it took to make us right with God and to give us a second chance. And so he died on a cross for us because and it was almost like to give us a second chance. Hope you don't mess up your second chance because I don't know if Jesus gives you any third chances. Like you and I had gone through life making so many bad decisions, so many selfish, self-destructive decisions. It's like we could have been holding up a sign that said, look at me. I'm stupid. Yeah, um, you're not dealing with sin properly because... Ultimately, we're guilty of sinning against God himself. And it's much deeper than just bad decisions. We're actually hostile toward God. We hate him by nature as a result of our corrupted sinful nature. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. Just to say, oh, yeah, um, you know, we make such bad decisions. Look at us. We're stupid. It's much deeper than that. Much deeper. As a result of it, this gospel doesn't exactly make much sense. And all of our bad decisions had just left us, honestly, just covered in in sin. And so Jesus went to the cross. And if we say yes to the offer that he's making to us, he promises to, to make us clean and to give us second life. Clean from what? Bad decisions? And it's like he gives us a new sign that says, look at me, I'm beautiful (laughs) because of what Jesus did for me. And and I said, yes, and he's changed my life and and I'm beautiful. You know what Jesus does? He then says, listen, here's the deal. I didn't save you just for you. I, I did not save you to be selfish with my love. I saved you so that you could share my love with this world that I loved. I saved you so that you could be a gorilla lover. And Jesus hands us a cape and he says, go be a hero. Go do average, ordinary, everyday kind of things with my supernatural love. Let's pray. So there you go. Um, yeah. Sounded like more like sentimental love, a little closer to the social gospel. But hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking care of the poor, giving a meal to somebody who's hungry, helping a stranded motorist. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, 
That sounds like the fruit of the Spirit to me. Good work, loving and serving your neighbor. What was missing from this was a clear exposition of our, of our problem, our sin, and how Jesus' death on the cross takes care of that problem for the forgiveness of our sins. Let me go back to this wonderful Christmas text from uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before he came before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Talking about sins and diluting it so that it's just bad decisions, self-destructive behavior, is to miss the point. Because the Bible defines what a sin is. And the first sin was committed in the Garden of Eden by our first parents. When they disobeyed God, disobeyed the commandment that he had given, and broke the covenant that they had with him. In the same way, a sin is not just a bad decision, a self-destructive behavior. Truly, that's part of sin. But sin goes much deeper than that. Sin goes all the way down into our nature, where each and every one of us is born with Adam's sin imputed to us as if we had committed it. Born dead in trespasses and sins, objects of God's wrath, having earned his just judgment and punishment for our sins. And with each passing day that we do not love God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength, and each day that we do not truly love our neighbor as ourselves, each and every day that goes by where we do not honor our parents, where we blaspheme God's name, where we lie against our neighbor, steal, murder, commit adultery, covet. Each and every day that goes by that our sinful hearts produces that sinful fruit, we store up more of God's wrath. But... The scriptures say that the Savior, the one that the angel announced to Joseph, who would save his people from their sins, took up our infirmities and bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is truly good news. Martin Luther once wrote, You cast your sins from yourself and on to Christ when you firmly believed that his wounds and sufferings are for your sins, to be born and paid for by him. As we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, that says, 
the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. St. Peter says, In his body he has borne our sins on the wood of the cross. And St. Paul says, God has made him a sinner for us, so that through him we would be made just. You must stake everything on these and similar verses. The more your conscience torments you, the more tenaciously you must cling to them. If you do not do that, but presume to still your conscience with your contrition, with your penance, your obedience, you will never obtain peace of mind, but will have to despair in the end. If we allow sin to remain in our conscience and try to deal with it there, or if we look at sin in our heart, it will be much too strong for us and will live on forever. But if we behold it resting on Christ and see it overcome by his resurrection, and then boldly believe this, even it is dead and nullified. Sin cannot remain on Christ since it is swallowed up by his resurrection. That's what's missing from all of these seeker-driven sermons. A clear placarding Christ. A clear exposition of what sin is, where it comes from, and ultimately what its consequences are, and what Christ has done for us. Scriptures describe Jesus' sacrifice for our sins in so many ways. How can we not tell this story? These seeker-driven guys, they claim that the, the, the justification for these sermons is that they're meeting people's needs. Hogwash they are. They are not. They are not meeting people's needs because they're not meeting the one need that every one of us as human beings has, the need for a Savior, the hearing and the placarding of the gospel, the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. It gets mentioned quickly and in passing, but it doesn't make any sense because it's not told in the context of the story of what Jesus has done. And yet when you look back in time, to how the gospel spread. How did Christianity spread? How did it become what it was in its heyday? Answer, by men who preached and proclaimed the story. They told the story. They told the story of our great God and Savior who had come to earth, the one that the angel announced to Joseph, the one who would save his people from his sins, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the one who nursed at her breasts, the one who was taken and spirited off to Egypt so that Herod wouldn't kill him, the one who was then brought back from Egypt to the town of Nazareth, the one who walked on the water, the one who calmed a storm with a word and said, hush, to the elements as if he owned them, the one who paid his taxes by having his disciple cast a line out into the Sea of Galilee and catch a couple of fish and pull the coins from their mouth, the one who cast out demons, the one who gave speech to the mute, eyesight to the blind, raised children from the dead, and called forth his good friend Lazarus from the grave. 
and the one who was crucified, scourged, beaten, bruised, bled, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, nails driven into his hands and his feet, the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one whom, when he was being crucified, the sun was darkened and turned to blood. The one who, when he had given up his spirit and cried out, To Telestai, it is finished. The veil that separated the holy place from the temple, from the holy of holies, was ripped from top to bottom. Who, when he died, there was an earthquake. And even the soldier who crucified him said, Surely this man was the Son of God. But death could not hold him, for he is the chieftain of man. He is God. And death did not hold him, and he rose again from the dead just like he said he would. And now he is announcing to all men everywhere, Repent of your sins and be forgiven. Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Flee the coming wrath of God, for in Jesus Christ there is salvation, and there is no other name given by which men must be saved than Jesus Christ. The problem with these seeker guys, they don't tell the story. As a result of it, their sermons are powerless. They're frivolous. They're stupid, they're self-centered, they're egotistical, they're narcissistic, and they are absolutely powerless. They don't really change people's lives because they can't. Because there's no power in them. The power isn't in the clever relevance of the pastor. The power lies in the Word of God. And where the word of God is not preached, there is no power. There is no power to save. There's no power to draw men to repentance. There's no power to convict people of their sins and show them their need for a savior. Without the word of God, without the telling of the story of the great chieftain Jesus Christ, there is no power. They can sit there and celebrate however many years they've been in existence and they can pat themselves on the back and claim that they're heroes all that they want. But they're not. They're only deceiving themselves and their hearers. As they whittle away the hours, ticking off the days to the day where they will stand before God and have to give an accounting for this nonsense. Pray for Vince Antonucci and the Verve. Pray that God opens his eyes and brings him to repentance. And pray that he teaches and preaches and placards Christ and tells the story instead of his own. Pastors are not called to tell their stories. They're called to tell the story of Jesus. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website. You know the drill. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkbackfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter 
My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.